0: This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 18th of November 2016, the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law hosted its third annual conference, entitled From Refugee Emergency to Protracted Exile, The Role of Time in International Protection. This is a recording of the closing keynote address given by Professor Francois Crepeau, United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of Migrants. This session was chaired by Andrew Caldor AM, founder of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law. Thank you very much. Um, I would like to start by a sentence that I've learned in the past 18 days. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we are gathered upon today, and pay my respect to the elders, past, present, and future. I'm going to take that back to Canada. That's I find very uh, very interesting. I feel a bit intimidated. You've been you know I'm in front of a, a you know a group of specialists, and you've been discussing these issues all day and I come with uh, my, uh, the little knowledge that I've gathered over the past 18 days, and I'm going to lecture you on what you know better than me. That's, that's a bit intimidating, but I'll, I'll give you, um, the, uh, in part, the presentation I made to uh, the Australian authorities this morning in Canberra after these 18 days, um, so that you understand the process and, and what I'm doing um, as a special rapporteur, I'm, uh, and first of all, I'm, as was said very aptly, I'm an independent expert. I'm not on the payroll. I'm not representing the UN. I can say things that the UN will contradict tomorrow. I'm an independent expert. I do that pro bono, uh, and uh, it's my personal capacity that, that uh, I engage only. Um, I'm supposed to do, on average, two country visits per year and two thematic reports per year. So four reports. I report to the Human Rights Council in June. I report to the General Assembly, the Third Commission, in um, October. And so this, uh, what I've just done, is a country visit. It's 18 days. It's a bit more than usual. Um, Usually it's 11, 12 days. But Australia is a big country, so I think 18 days was actually necessary. And I didn't see everything. For sure. Um, What I do on the last day of the mission, always, that's standard operating procedures for special procedures, we do an end-of-mission statement, which contains preliminary conclusions of what we've seen during the the mission, and we give that to the authorities. It's followed by a press conference. There's the release of a press release, and attached to the press release is the end-of-mission statement. It usually is five, six pages. Today, it's ten pages, I imagine I had lots to say. Um, the report comes after. The report is a, almost precisely 10,700 words, because that's the maximum that we'll have interpreters for. So it's about 22, 24 pages. Um, and it is done over the, the following months. Um, in this case, it will be done until approximately mid-March. The authorities will get a draft mid-February for comments so that they can have an input on the report. And mid-March, we send it for translation in the five other languages of the UN, and it's posted at the end of May, and I presented the second week of June. Well, that's the process uh, we're in. Um, the mission is always organized at the invitation of, of the authorities of the country. I requested an invitation. Um, Australia has a, a standing invitation to all human rights procedures, so it was not difficult to obtain the invitation. We find dates, we agree on dates. And it was um, uh, very well done. I've had great collaboration of uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs and the Department of Immigration and Border Protection in preparing this mission. Uh, We organized with them, and in this case it was essentially the line ministry, the Department of Immigration and Border Protection. Uh, We co-organized the official part of the mission, the meetings with all the civil servants the meetings with, um, you know, the going to de- detention centres, uh, going to places where uh, most of us usually don't go, because it's, you know, uh, security, etc. So all this is organised with our partners in government, so either foreign affairs or line ministry. Um, the other part of the mission uh, is meeting with NGOs, civil society, uh, service providers, media, colleagues. Uh, and this is privately organized. The government uh, is not apprised by us of what we do. In some missions, we know that the government knows everything that we do anyway. So uh, what I'm presenting today are the preliminary uh, observations. Uh, There might be errors, and, and there's bound to be errors. We can't, in 18 days, understand everything that's going on. It's quite complicated, And I want to say that I've I've really had a great cooperation uh, of the authorities, and that uh, that counts. We've I've been able to uh, go to first Canberra to meet the authorities there. Met a great number of civil servants of different uh, ministries, different departments who work uh, with migrants. Uh, I've been to Canberra, Perth, Melbourne, uh, Brisbane, Sydney. Visited five detention centres in all those cities. Been to Nauru for two days. This was organised with the authorities of uh, Nauru with the help, I imagine, of Australian authorities. Um, And so this was really interesting. I've also uh, met with a great number of of civil society people and that was also um, very interesting. All all in all, I mean, uh, the first point that I made to the authorities this morning is that Australia is a great country of immigration with a great tradition, um, with a rich experience, uh, and for many people uh, in Australia, a very positive experience of immigration. Out of the hundreds of thousands of migrants that Australia receives every year, the, the vast majority of them have a positive experience of immigration. And so that, that is important, and recent initiatives like welcoming, like increasing the number of refugees to soon 18,750, uh, the uh, number of Syrian refugees, Syrian-Iraqi refugees that was announced, 12,000, out of whom 9,000 have already received a visa and 6,000 have already arrived in Australia. That's quick. That's, that's a, a quick turnaround um, for uh, this country, and so that's good. The number of students of temporary uh, migrant worker visa, of working holiday visa is also huge. And for many, including my daughter, who now lives in Sydney, uh, it's a positive experience. It's something which is absolutely great. And I've been particularly impressed by the energy, the imagination, um, the determination, the dedication of civil society. Uh, and particularly service providers to migrants, those who help migrants integrate. I've met with them in all five cities that i visited. I also met with them in Nauru. And um, uh, there are absolutely great initiatives, people who really care and people who help integrate, and that is very interesting. And, and it's a contrast maybe with the uh, image that uh, Australia has projected in, in the past Few years about its um, uh, attitude towards asylum seekers and refugees. There are many people out there who actually uh, care and do um, and, and go to great extent to make sure that these people are helped uh, in the best way possible. However, uh, all this being said, there are um, uh, issues, um, human rights issues, important human rights issues. The first point I've made was um, the punitive approach to unauthorized maritime arrivals. It is a punitive approach. It is defined as a punitive approach. Uh, The idea is to punish people who come irregularly in order to deter others and to send a message to the smugglers. That's how it's explained. Um, Whether it deters anyone remains to be proven. I haven't really seen. The pushbacks may have probably stop the boats. I'm not sure that um, the punitive approach has. It hasn't worked elsewhere. Let's say say that. Um, Maritime, uh, unauthorized maritime arrivals are treated very differently from air arrivals, unauthorized air arrivals. And that is a distinction which is a discrimination. It It has no basis in international law, in refugee law, in human rights law. You know, two people claiming protection for the same reason, one arriving by air, one arriving by boat, and the only reason why they're treated very differently is their mode of arrival. doesn't make sense to me much in terms of principles. Second, the idea of deterring by punishing. You cannot deter Bill by punishing uh, John. That's not how human rights law functions. And that's best expressed in uh, Kant's categorical imperative, Never treat the other only as a mean, but always also as an end. And that's the great lesson of human rights. Every one of us is an individual worthy of respect, of dignity, and having their rights protected. Everyone. And there's no distinction. We cannot punish one to deter the other. That doesn't work in international human rights law. So to me, that that approach is flawed, fundamentally flawed. Second, uh, immigration detention. Immigration detention on Australia mainland has been considerably reduced in recent months. It has been important, but it has been considerably reduced. The number of people detained has nothing to do with what it was in the past. So that, to me, uh, is a good thing. Australia has developed alternatives to detention. There is community detention, which is still part of a detention, but People are allowed to circulate, so that's sort of a halfway measure. But many of the, of the, of the refugees and, and asylum seekers are on bridging visas or other types of visas. And that, to me, is uh, a good way of avoiding uh, detention in detention centers. The problem is with the uh, rule of mandatory detention for all unauthorized arrivals at the beginning. And that, again, this mandatory detention rule, to me, has no basis in international human rights law. Deprivation of liberty is only justifiable if it is legal, necessary, proportional, reasonable, and a measure of last resort for each individual. For that, you need an individual assessment. Making detention mandatory for everyone does not respect those criteria. It leaves no space for considering the particular circumstances and for applying procedural safeguards and allowing people to uh, uh, have access to regular review mechanisms with appropriate legal representations and interpreting services publicly funded if necessary. That is not in place. Mandatory detention, in that sense, to me, is a violation of uh, fundamental human rights principles. And the majority of uh, people in detention today have been held in detention for more than two years. I've met people who were in detention, in administrative detention without charges and having committed no crime for eight years. The longest, I'm told, has been in detention for nine years. I've met one who was there for nine years. Um, the, you can imagine the damage that does to um, physical but also mental health. Uh, The levels uh, of uh, mental health issues with asylum seekers and refugees in particular is very important, those who are detained. Self-harm, PTSD, anxiety, depression. Uh, Many of them are on a daily diet of uh, happy pills in the morning and sleeping tablets in the evening. And and that is, including teenagers, um, that is an unacceptable outcome. Uh, when it's engineered by a policy. So I've, I've, uh, and I believe, and I'm not, I'm not the first one, I've studied um, quite um, closely the numbers and the conditions, etc., to see if I would associate myself, but I associate myself to all those, including several UN bodies, who have said that this amounts to cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment or punishment in international human rights law. Um, I I think that um, the the Australian authorities should dismantle the mandatory detention policy and should set a a, a statutory limit in law for administrative detention without charges and uh, without having committed any crime. I recognise that there's need to be some leeway for security risks, but not nine years, not seven and a half years. There has to be a statutory limit of some kind. Um, the issue of children in detention thank God, on, the main, on Australia's territory, um, I've had two statistics. One was that there was one child in detention, and the other was there were four children in detention. Whether it's one or four, it's too many. We agree on that, but it's quite extraordinary. Australia is the only country I know who has almost effectively implemented the policy of no children in, de- in immigration detention. And I'm talking about the mainland. Uh, um, uh, and that is, to me, quite extraordinary. That's really a success, having done that and having purposely done that. It was done, you know, there, there was a policy of getting all these children out of detention. Not many countries have done that. So that's a good thing. Um, I suggested to the, uh, to the Austrian authorities that this should be committed to law. That there should be a standard written somewhere in, in probably in the Immigration Act that children are not to be detained and that alternatives to detention must always be found for unaccompanied children and families with children. Um, and this comes from... Uh, I mean, the the 2012 declaration of the Committee on the Rights of the Child, uh, when they said that um, immigration detention can never, ever be in the best interest of a child. Period. And and I'm quite happy to see that this is happening uh, here. But it should be committed to law so that we don't see another surge of uh, detention of children in the future if circumstances happen. Um, However, in the regional processing centers in, in, uh, in Nauru, there are a lot of children. And in the settlements outside, but on Nauru, there are a lot of children. And those children are scarred by their experience. They have been, many of them have been in detention in the RPCs. And then when the RPCs were opened... When, they were, when the family was recognized as refugee, they were in, in, the, set, sorry, in the settlements uh, in, in Nauru, uh, although some of them have stayed in the RPCs for safety reasons. Those who are still asylum seekers are, have to live in the RPCs, although the RPC is open. They can come in and out by signing in and signing out. Um, those children are scarred. Um, they show signs of... Like the adults, PTSD, anxiety, depression. They uh, have insomnia, nightmares, bedwetting. Um, and, and this is quite across the board. A policy that does that must do something wrong. And that's what I've told the authority. Feelings of hopelessness and frustration. So children have to get out of that uh, environment. Um, Regional processing centres, segwaying. I agree with all those who say that uh, Australia is responsible for what's happening inside uh, the RPCs. These RPCs are created at the initiative of Australia, funded by Australia. Uh, The personnel is on contract by Australia. Uh, This is Australia's taxpayers' money. Um, Australia is responsible. It may also be co-responsible with Nauru authorities. There may be a co-responsibility, but there's no escaping that Australia is also, at least also, responsible and should be held accountable for what's happening there. I'm not the first one to say that. Many uh, UN bodies have said that. Um, Especially due to the fact that it was purposely engineered by Australian authorities as a deterrence mechanism. There was an intent uh, of making it a deterrence mechanism. And considering that, um, uh, uh, considering the incredible hardship that most of the refugees who are there have endured before arriving in Nauru, and considering that uh, Australia has been put on notice for several years of the problems um, by civil society, by the UN. I think it's a statement of fact to say that Australia is responsible for the considerable damage inflicted to asylum seekers and refugees. And that, um, again, the involuntary geographical and psychological confinement, it's not a detention anymore, but it's a confinement on Nauru. You really have the impression of being confined to a very narrow space on the planet. Um, Constitutes here, too, cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment and punishment. The only solution is to quickly close those centres. And I'll come to that. In Nauru, um, we must all recognise that the Australian authorities have done, have operated considerable investment to try to increase the capacity of the centres, the services, the quality of the services offered, um, the capacity of Nauruan authorities to provide health services, including mental health services, uh, to provide education services. There has been a considerable investment in the community. And in that sense, uh, Australia is, I mean, has tried to change the situation. The fact that the RPCs were opened at one point uh, also changed the situation. Uh, But the testimonies I received, I talked to many uh, of the uh, refugees uh, in Nauru, um, stories of despair, lack of information, contradictory information, um, and and especially having been disappointed too many times by rumors and and information received that didn't prove right. Mental health issues are rife. Uh, Again, sleeping tablets and, and happy pills uh, almost, for for a majority of the population. Australia will have to settle or resettle those refugees. Those, I mean, they can't stay there. And Nauruan authorities are very clear that this is transitory. Now, what's the length of a transition? Huh? We talk about sustainable development. We all know that unsustainable situation can be sustained for a long time. And so... This should not last, and we hope that this is going to change. There is now talk of an agreement with uh, the U.S. This agreement has has been announced after I had left Nauru last week. Uh, There were rumors, but uh, there were only rumors, and there are many rumors. Um, If the agreement leads to many people leaving Nauru, um, it will be a good thing. Uh, But it has to be implemented properly. I understand that uh, I don't have anything more than what you have. I've had a 10-minute briefing uh, with a high-level official about the public content uh, of of the information available. So I understand that uh, it is uh, the uh, Austrian authorities that are transmitting the file that the file is approved by UNHCR, transmitted to the Americans. The Americans are choosing according to priorities. I understand that they will prioritize families, families with children. Um, and, and so, you know, uh, and I also understand that uh, it is the uh, in, intent of all parties to have the first arrivals in the U.S. before Christmas, which is good, which means, means you know, they kick-start the, proce- the procedure before, you know, very quickly. Um, the, Ameri- the American team is already in Canberra. Uh, there is a UNHCR delegation in Canberra. I mean, they, the forces are there. They want to move fast. We—no uh, one knows what the change of administration on the twentieth of January will do. Um, it may not do much uh, if uh, the transfer is operated. You know, um, um, you know. If, for example, there are. 20, 30, or 40 people going to the U.S. every month, uh, it might not even hit the news. It, these are very small numbers. It may very well be that the new administration will not even you know, really see it or will not make a big fuss about it. We don't know. This, all, this is all speculation. Uh, but uh, certainly it's the hope of everyone that this will be seen through and that a, lo- a great number of uh, the people on Nauru and Manus Island will uh, be moved. Um, For those who are not selected by the Americans, Australia has the responsibility of finding other places of resettlement. And if the number is not too high, um, I can imagine that New Zealand could renew their offer. And I imagine that if there is a small number at the end... Australia could even relent on its um, promise not to let anyone come. I mean, the idea is to solve the issue. That, to me, is... I'll come back to regional cooperation. Oversight mechanisms. We've been impressed by the number of oversight mechanisms, but we've uh, considered that quite often. For example, the Commonwealth uh, ombudsman, the reports are not made public, or at least not made public immediately. Uh, and it's really a, an internal oversight which is done rather than a public oversight. I think that, that is missing. There is an issue about um, uh, independent oversight with reports made public on a regular basis. I think, for example, that the Human Rights Commission should be allowed to go to Nauru and Manus Island and do their own assessment. Um, I've um, been quite impressed with the role of the Fair Work Ombudsman, uh, in uh, fighting in, in trying to fight uh, labour exploitation especially with a temporary migrant worker visas uh, there's quite a lot of good work which is done I'm, um, I've noted however that there's no estimation no real um, well done, well calculated estimation of the size of the problem of the exploitation of students and backpackers and um, holiday makers etc. We don't, there's no knowledge, there's, you know, data is missing, and that, I think, is something that needs to be uh, recognized. It's probably bigger than we think, maybe not as big as we fear, but it's, it's, it will be probably a significant number of people who find themselves in exploitative conditions. I think Australian authorities have to attend to that. And I think Australia should ratify the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture and establish the independent national preventative mechanism that it provides for. Access to justice, equality before the law. I think here, on immigration issues, Australia has a big problem. Um, Many decisions, and that's what I was hearing when I came into the room, many decisions are decisions based on administrative discretion, eventually even ministerial discretion, um, with little review possible except judicial review, uh, which is always hard to uh, obtain uh, because you have to go, you know, you have to be, you have to have a counsel, you have to have interpreters, etc. cetera. Uh, but, um, and also it's not a review of the facts. Judicial review is about errors of law. Most of the decisions taken about migrants are decisions of fact. I don't believe you. That's a decision of fact. It's not reviewable, really, by, uh, by any court of law. So, there is a problem. There's a problem of capacity to access, and there's also a problem to have a lawyer. Most of the migrants I've met in detention have difficulty finding, have difficulty talking to a lawyer. If you're detained in Yonge Hill, the lawyer has to drive for an hour and a half just to come to see you. That doesn't happen often uh, because that's, that has a cost, and that means three hours just for driving. doesn't happen. Um, So access to lawyers, access, I mean, legal aid programs, which existed in the past, have been uh, taken off the table. Um, uh, Access to information, access to civil society organization when you're in detention, very difficult. Access to civil society organization in Nauru, very difficult. Uh, They're not necessarily welcome. Uh, So no information, no counsel, no legal aid, uh, capacity to, um, to access justice is extremely limited. And I think that, is, um, that comes from uh, years of teaching constitutional law. The more you have administrative discretion, the more judicial review you need in order to ensure that the space for administrative discretion, which is necessary in government, is not clouded by suspicion of illegitimacy. You need judicial review to ensure that, systematically, decisions taken can be taken to court effectively. And when governments accept that uh, and think about it in advance, very often we see that maybe 10, 15, sometimes 20% of decisions will be struck down by the courts. But that means that 85, 80% of the decisions will be validated most of the decisions taken by government will be validated. And that, to me, is a very positive income for any governmental authority. And that would be um, the next uh, uh, element. I think what is missing uh, in Australia, and that's a conversation I've had with Mary Kroc for many years, uh, what is missing is uh, either a uh, constitutional bill of rights or a legislative human rights act which would allow everyone, all Australians and all foreigners under the jurisdiction of Australia, to test the validity of any law, any um, policy, any decision taken, which may affect their rights. And again, this is a a legitimacy test that will run in favour of government for most of their decisions. And I don't think, unfortunately, that uh, politicians always see that. There are many other issues in the end-of-mission statement that we could talk about. If you look at the end-of-mission statement, it's now made public, uh, I have a section on non refoulement one on complaints against abuse and immigration detention, and RPCs. I have a, uh, something on guardianship system for unaccompanied children, something on family reunions, something on visa refusal and cancellations, on access to citizenship, on the Border Force Act, on labor exploitation, on xenophobic speeches and acts. So these are other important issues. I won't uh, go into detail. I'd rather have a conversation with you. One last thought, which is not in the end of mission statement, I reserve that for the report, but it will be in the report, um, is uh, international cooperation. Um, I, I think that um, several countries, including Australia, from what I've gathered, understand now... That was not necessarily the case five years ago. Understand now that control of immigration and international migration governance cannot be done alone. That migration movements will occur. We are a migratory species. That's in our DNA. It's not going to stop because governments decide so. Uh, Migration cannot be stopped, but migration can be governed. And no, not one single country can do it alone. Therefore, if we, have, if we are to govern migration, it will be through uh, regional cooperation or global cooperation at different levels. This is what I think um, has developed at a global level since the first high-level dialogue of 2006 through the Global Forum on Migration and Development, the second high-level dialogue in uh, 2013, and now we have the global compacts that are coming for 2018, I think there is a realization that migration governance has to be cooperative, and we have to work to solve uh, migration governance issues, and that trying to stop migration movements simply is not sustainable. Target 10.7 of the 2030 Agenda on Sustainable Development, states have committed to facilitating migration. Now, facilitating in English, or in French, the other language I I know of, uh, same word, um, means making easier. That's not exactly what we hear politicians say, but that's what we've all committed to for the next 15 years. And so, I think that one of the challenges that we are going to face in the coming years, uh, for example, through the negotiation of the Global Compacts, is can we think of the Global Compacts as a first step towards making mobility uh, easier, facilitating mobility, offering more options for legal, safe, affordable, accessible mobility solutions? And that would go for asylum seekers, for refugees, for uh, temporary migrant workers, for people facilitating migration and mobility and facilitating integration for ourselves as well as for others. And to me, this this is the kind of project we can put, for example, in an agenda. We could have a 15-year agenda for facilitating uh, migration and mobility, like we have a second Sustainable Development Goals agenda. And I think that uh, countries like Australia, like my country, Canada, many countries in Europe could take a leadership role in doing this. And I think that many, for example, middle-income countries, I think of Indonesia and Malaysia in this region, but Brazil, Argentina, Chile, and Latin America uh, could play also a leadership role in, in doing this. And for me, there's a challenge here to change the attitude from let's stop the boat now to... What can we do in the next 20 years to make all this work better for ourselves and for them? Uh, I'll stop there.